Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75Live.com. I'm Shannon Riley. Thank you to my darling daughter, Bibi, for that great intro. And I'm here to talk to you about the works of William Shakespeare. I am not a Shakespeare scholar, as I always say. I am somebody who is just a Shakespeare fanatic, and I happen to enjoy talking about his works. And right now, we're on a quest to go through each one of his plays, one at a time, and talk a little about those plays. Give us all the same basic working group that we can uh, expand upon as we talk further about the works of this legendary playwright. Today's story is Antony and Cleopatra, and this is a very interesting play. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say that it's probably one that very few people know, even though it's written during the height of Shakespeare's power as a writer. This is considered one of his finest dramas that comes from a time he had just finished works like Hamlet, King Lear, and Othello. And here we are with a play going back to the ancient Roman Empire and the story of Antony and Cleopatra. Now, this could be considered a sequel since he already had written a play called Julius Caesar in which Mark Antony takes a very big role. And yes, it does pick up on these lives later, but it's hard to classify this as a sequel. In fact, it's hard to classify it as anything. It's part history, though it's not really a historical play. Shakespeare's histories tend to be about English history. And on top of that, he's kind of loose and fancy free with some of the historical elements in the story. Now, that might not have been Shakespeare's fault. What he would have known about the real life of Mark Antony and Cleopatra might have been very, very little, in all honesty. But the main source of the play is a book by the name of Sir Thomas North, which was a translation of an earlier piece, and it was the life of Mark Antony from the lives of noble Grecians and Romans compared together. This was published in late 1579. Shakespeare would have had access to this uh, particular body of work, and he would have used this as a basis for a lot of his Roman plays. And Mark Antony and Cleopatra are really unique. Now, as I said, it can't really be classified as a history. It's also very tragic. It ends with the suicide of both of our title characters here, as well as many other attendants, friends, people around them. It's not really totally a tragedy either. There's some very funny moments in it and some very funny lines, but it certainly isn't a comedy. 
It's considered one of those problem plays. It defies classification, and really, it's hard for us to really totally wrap our brain around it not being in Shakespeare's time and what they were feeling when it was being performed. So it is problematic in that way, but it is still a magnificent play. I've often thought of it as the watered-down visit to the Macbeths. Because here you have in Cleopatra a woman of incredible beauty, incredible strength, and incredible political savvy. She wants to maintain control over her world, and she uses sex to do it. She's a complex character. If, if any character that Shakespeare wrote is complex, it's Cleopatra here. Because she's got the wisdom that you would find in a character like Portia. She's got the ruthlessness of Lady Macbeth. But she's got the charm and sophistication of Beatrice. She's an incredibly complex character. And this seems right. If you think about ancient leaders, ancient rulers of the world, you'd be hard-pressed to think of another woman other than Cleopatra. She stood head and shoulders above all the rest. And her machinations are the center point of this play. It truly is a remarkable story. Also, the Mark Antony we meet here in this play is a shadow of the Mark Antony we saw in Julius Caesar, which I talked about a few weeks ago. The Mark Antony in Julius Caesar was young, vital. He's able to play both sides of the political fence, and he confronts Caesar's murderers and uses it to gain great political power himself by the end of the play. This Mark Antony is older. He's full of drink, full of food. He is relaxing in Egypt, a place that he is able to rule with Cleopatra along by his side. His new lover, an absolutely vivacious and powerful woman. He doesn't want to go back to Rome. He's pretty happy where he's at. And it's because of this dichotomy of Anthony that we get a very interesting relationship. Shakespeare uses some of his old tropes here. He's got the soothsayer that is able to see the future and warns Mark Antony of impending doom. Again, this is a touchback to the witches of Macbeth or even the ghosts that visit Richard III on the battlefield. But there's also these very tight relationships that he develops in the play among characters. It's a complex play in that there's no real villain. You can say Octavius, man who becomes Roman Emperor, I should say, is maybe the villain, but he, he really isn't. What he's doing, he's doing for what he needs to do for the Empire. Mark Antony isn't a villain. He's just in love and older and lazy. And Cleopatra isn't a villain. She's just trying to maintain control of her world, a world that is dominated by men, and she can rule them only one way, through sex appeal. So this complex play that we're going to talk about today is one that you probably have not read, and you should. You probably have not seen, and you should. It really is a unique play, especially since this is about armies and battles at sea. It was a massive undertaking, 42 different scenes, the largest scenic breakdown of any Shakespearean play, mostly written in verse, yet even in that case, you see a different kind of language being used in Rome than used in Egypt. You see a real West versus East look to the play. Rome is a place of absolute order, control, discipline. This is where Octavius is. Egypt is a place of languid beauty, release, comfort, joy, and the joy of the flesh. So it's 
East versus West, this idea of an absolute male-dominated world against a female-dominated world, and Shakespeare's very clear about who has to win. So, come along with me today as we talk about Antony and Cleopatra, one of Shakespeare's last most powerful dramas. But of course, I have to invite my boy in because he's going to tell us that it's time for... And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. That's right, Shakespeare's Quote of the Week. There's a couple of really good quotes in here, but I love this one quote. It's from Aquan Singwan, and it's Filio who is addressing the audience, who is giving us kind of a narration of what is to come. And he speaks of Mark Antony by saying this. He says, And you shall see in him, meaning Mark Antony, the triple pillar of the world transformed into a strumpet's fool. Act 1, scene 1. You hear it in Mark Antony, who doesn't want to leave Egypt to go back to Rome. And in Act 1, scene 1, even says, Let Rome and Tiber melt, and the wide arch of our ranging empire fall. Here is my space. He just loves being in Egypt, and Cleopatra echoes it. Eternity was in our lips and in our eyes. Act 1, scene 3. She goes on to say, as she watches Mark Antony leaving to return to Rome, Oh, happy horse, to bear the weight of Antony. Act 1, scene 5. <laughs> I think that's very funny, that she's jealous of the horse he's riding on. But then, of course, there's quotes that have lived on today. Cleopatra says it also in Act 1, scene 5. My salad days, where I was green in judgment, cold in blood. We still use that term, my salad days, today. But perhaps the sweetest and final one I want to do is one from Cleopatra shortly before she dies. She commits suicide by putting an asp to her breast. And she says, Give me my robe. Put on my crown. I have immortal longings in me. Now no more the juice of Egypt's grape shall moist this lip. Act 5, scene 1. She's really saying goodbye here. And she does not want to go on, not without Mark Antony, who has already died. But perhaps you didn't know that, and maybe I'm giving too many spoiler alerts. So let's take a moment here, a quick look at the synopsis of Antony and Cleopatra, and then talk about what makes it such a unique play on the other side. Okay, our play takes place after the death of Julius Caesar. In fact, four years after the death of Julius Caesar. And the Roman Empire has basically been split into three different sections ruled by three, a triumphant of three rulers. They are Mark Antony, who has stationed himself in the south in Egypt, Octavius Caesar, Julius Caesar's nephew, who is in Rome and taking care of the majority of the Roman Empire there, and Lepidus, who is in control of all things east of Rome. Now, things are going okay for Mark Antony as far as he's concerned. He's in the eastern Mediterranean, he's living in Egypt, he loves it there, he loves life there, and he is having an affair with the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. Now in Act 1, he receives a visitor from Rome who tells him that his wife, he is married by the way, Fulvia, has died. But not only did she die, she led a rebellion against Octavius to try to overthrow him, presumably to install her husband Mark Antony to emperor. Mark Antony is immediately summoned back to Rome by Octavius to answer for the crimes that his wife has committed and to find out 
well, basically a loyalty check on Octavius's part to find out if Mark Antony is still trustworthy. He doesn't care to go. Cleopatra begs him not to go, and yet at the same time, Mark Antony knows he has to return to Rome. So he packs everything up and heads out, and Cleopatra throws a terrible fit at the sight of seeing him go. This is what's amazing about the character of Cleopatra. You love her and you hate her in the same place, sometimes in the same scene. She can appear so vulnerable, so desperate, so needy, yet at other times she can appear so ruthless, so calculating, and sometimes she's just sexy, and she uses that sex appeal to gain absolute control over people. It's a dynamic character and a great role for anyone who gets to play her. Now, in Act 2, we're back in Rome. And Antony and Octavius have met and agreed to settle their differences and start all over as friends. But since Mark Antony's wife led a rebellion and has now paid for it with her life, Octavius doesn't want to take any chances. So it's suggested that Mark Antony marry Octavius' sister, Octavia. This will cement the relationship, keep them tight as brothers, as he says, and maintain this delicate balance of power they have. Mark Antony sees no way around it and agrees to marry. Now, Antony's best friend and a fellow soldier, Enobarbus, refuses to believe that Anthony could ever give up Cleopatra, certainly not for Octavia. He tells his Roman friends of her beauty and her great power at the Egyptian court, but they have other problems to deal with. You see, there's some pirates, and these pirates have been threatening the peace uh, and safety of the empire. They're led by Pompey, and they decide that they've got to find a way to bring a rebellious Pompey back into order. The rulers, including Lepidus, make peace with the rebellious Pompey, and Pompey entertains him on his ship. Now, during this feast, some of Pompey's officers come to him and say, You've got the three triumphant leaders of the Roman Empire here. Kill them and install yourself as emperor. But he refuses to kill them, and peace is arranged and Antony is happy to return to Rome and marry Octavia. In Act 3, Cleopatra learns of Antony's marriage, and she is furious. She's filled with rage, but her court soon settles her down as her maid tells her that she is far more beautiful than this Octavia, and that certainly she's round and plump and doesn't have her beautiful hair, that eventually Mark Antony will return to her. Comforted in that, Cleopatra settles back down and dreams of a time that she and Antony will once again rule Egypt. Now, Antony and Octavia have reached Athens when they learn that Octavius has revoked the peace treaty and attacked Pompey. He also betrayed the triumvirate and imprisoned Lepidus, taking control of his portion of the empire. Antony sends Octavia back to Rome in a hope to renew peace, but in truth is, he's just ridding her so he can go back to Egypt and ready for himself for war with Octavius. Antony goes to Egypt to raise an army with Cleopatra. Caesar, disgusted that Antony has abandoned his new wife, Octavia, declares war on both Antony and Cleopatra. Enobarbus, his great friend of Antony, warns him, do not fight Octavius at sea. His navy is far too strong, far too fast, far too agile. Meet him on land. But Octavius challenges him to a sea battle, and Antony's pride won't allow him to say no. And he heads to sea to do battle with Octavius. Cleopatra, in the meantime, promises him her fleet to back him up, and 60 of her ships follow Antony's into battle. Alright, that's the end of Act 3, and the end of Part 1 for my show. I'm going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back, talk a little bit more about Antony and Cleopatra, 
and get into what makes this place so good. We'll see you after the break. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. Thank you for joining me, Shannon. I'm Shannon Shakespeare. I'm here to talk to you about all the works of William Shakespeare. And today we're talking about the great drama, Antony and Cleopatra. Say, if you'd like to talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. Send me an email. You can reach me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. You can send me an email there and also go visit ShannonJRiley.com. There's some wonderful short films on there as well as some snippets of my plays. I'd love to see more theaters doing my work. So if you want to check them out, you can find them all at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. There's also past episodes of the Shannon Shakespeare Shundays uploaded there as well that you can listen to. All right. So today we've been talking about Antony and Cleopatra and I was near the end act three. Antony goes to meet Octavius in battle with ships on a sea. I'm not certain how Shakespeare would have depicted this other than after standing on stage screaming and pretending to rock back and forth on a boat. It would have been a very interesting scene to see indeed. But during the battle, it does not go well for Mark Antony. And Cleopatra, fearing ultimate defeat, decides to abandon the battle and take her ships home with her. Antony, seeing her running away, decides to chase after her, abandoning his own fleet, which is eventually completely destroyed by the forces of Octavius. In Act 4, he's humiliated. He feels beside himself. Antony knows he failed his men, and more than anything else, he's angry with Cleopatra. But he cannot fight her. He is so drawn to her. He says, even with but a kiss, I will forgive you. He just cannot separate himself from this love of his life. But the fight is not over, and he still has an army, and decides to meet Octavius on land, as he was suggested to do beforehand. But great damage has been done to the morale of his men that have seen him run away from the fight to follow Cleopatra. They believe that his god, Hercules, has now abandoned him, and that Hercules will not fight alongside Mark Antony anymore. They're doomed to failure. And to make matters worse, his best friend, Nabarbus, packs up and abandons Antony, running to Octavius to join his forces. Here's a very interesting difference between Mark Antony here and, say, a guy like Macbeth. Mark Antony isn't filled with rage when he learns his best friend has abandoned him. He's filled with sorrow. He feels that somehow he let his friend down and he's sorry that he's gone. And because of this, he doesn't claim his possessions. Instead, he has him packed up and sent back to Anabarus with a note saying, I'm sorry you had to leave. I hope you are well. This breaks Anabarus' heart. So much so, he actually dies of guilt. But it also shows a difference between Mark Antony here and other characters of Shakespeare's past that are in the middle of a battle. Richard III wouldn't be nice. Macbeth wouldn't have been nice. Heck, even Hamlet wouldn't have been nice. But no, here we see Mark Antony treating his old friend with grace and dignity. It's a very big departure for characters in Shakespeare's world. And I think it shows an older playwright. It shows him in a place that is quite different than where Shakespeare was when he was younger. His plays reflect his growth in his age. 
and his maturity. This play spans 10 years, 10 years, and multiple locations, thousands of miles throughout the Mediterranean. It's an epic story, and yet at the same time, it's one of Shakespeare's most human. As people speak, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavius, they speak as people. We recognize them. We empathize with them, which is why there's no true villain in this play, because you find yourself rooting for all sides at different times. It's truly a remarkably balanced piece. Anyway, back to the play itself. At the battle, now on land, Cleopatra sends men in, and again, they fear defeat, and they flee again. Antony feels abandoned. He's filled with anger this time, and Cleopatra is certain she will pay for his anger. You see, Octavius had sent a messenger to Cleopatra saying, If you abandon Antony, I'll let you live, and I'll let you rule Egypt. She does not answer this question. And Mark Antony knows of the messenger. And she knows Mark Antony knows. So she thinks the only way she can save herself from his wrath is to send word that she has already committed suicide in her temple. And word is sent to Mark Antony. Mark Antony, hearing that Cleopatra has died, is filled with remorse and sorrow, not anger. And he orders his first officer to stab him. The first officer refuses, even commits his own life so he doesn't have to kill Mark Antony. So Mark Antony takes out a sword and falls on it. But he doesn't even do this right. It doesn't kill him. It mortally wounds him, but it doesn't kill him. Soon word comes to him that she's alive. Cleopatra is alive. And they carry her up to her temple, set her before him. She holds him in her, her arms, and Mark Antony dies. The day is Caesar's. He takes control of Egypt. His army moves in on Cleopatra. She pulls a dagger at one point to try to take her own life, but is disarmed. Octavius says to her, You're going back with me to Rome, but you're going back as a head of state. I will treat you with respect. But her maids tell her that's not what awaits her. She'll be paraded through the streets. She'll be humiliated. So, she dresses in her finest robes, has the maids sneak her in these asps. Wasn't just one, or a few snakes. And she pours them on top of herself and allows herself to be bitten and commit suicide. One of the snakes even kills one of her maids, and another maid commits suicide. There's bodies everywhere at the end of this play. Octavius comes upon the dead bodies and says, maybe I treated them too harshly. They have now ensured that he will become the first emperor of Rome. So he decrees that they too shall be buried together in a tomb so that their love will live on eternally. That's the story of Antony and Cleopatra. So now we're caught up to what's going on. Let's talk about the story behind the story. Now I've been talking as I go along here a little bit about the behind the scenes story of Antony and Cleopatra. And a lot of it revolves around this character of Cleopatra. I want to go back to my golden rule now. And that's that golden rule is remember who Shakespeare is writing for. When did he write this? This is a Jacobean play, meaning King James is on the throne. But it's following decades of being ruled by a woman, Queen Elizabeth. The English people would have been accustomed to a female ruler. And a strong female ruler at that. So this Cleopatra that Shakespeare develops is infused a little bit with that memory, that idea that a woman could indeed be forceful and strong. In fact, Cleopatra is much more a driving force than Mark Antony. Mark Antony accomplishes very little. In retrospect, he stands next to Octavius and denounces the killers of Julius Caesar and is rewarded with roughly a third, a little bit less than a third, of the Roman Empire to rule. But he does nothing with it. 
He has a few minor campaigns, but instead he just sits being fat and drunk in Egypt and having sex with Cleopatra. He fails in his dream of becoming this dashing, romantic, powerful hero. He certainly never becomes emperor of Rome. Cleopatra, though, has hooked her star to him. There's a good question about Cleopatra. Is it because she felt she needed him or that she truly loved him? She speaks of great love for him. She speaks of how much she needs him. And when she learns that he has indeed married someone else, she is filled with rage and terror. But is that terror over losing a loved one or terror over losing control of her own destiny? She does not want anyone else ruling Egypt. It's important to her to maintain this control. A lot of people don't know this, but Cleopatra was not Egyptian. She was Greek. Her control over ruling Egypt was tenuous to begin with. And with Mark Antony, now in the hands of Octavius, it's even more tenuous. Would she not have been more afraid of losing power than losing Mark Antony to someone else? When he comes back, she quickly re-seduces him, pulls him into her bosom, holds him close, promises him armies, but twice Shakespeare has her abandon him on the battlefield. But the truth is, the real Cleopatra didn't necessarily abandon Mark Antony in battle. She ran with all the riches and goods that they had to set up shop somewhere else where Mark Antony could continue to fight for another year. Shakespeare turns this into a betrayal, a fearful move by a woman desperate to cling on to power. And she does it twice. And he paints Mark Antony as a man who cannot stay mad at her, forgives anything. He's so wrapped around her little finger. The other question is, did she not think that she had seduced Julius Caesar, Pompey, Mark Antony, that Octavius would just be another notch in her bedpost? Could she not have seduced him? Well, Shakespeare writes a very no-nonsense Octavius here. A man who is not enthralled by Cleopatra in the least. He considers her a whore and a strumpet, and even treats her as so in some of his dialogue in Rome. But he treats her with respect as a leader of her country when he visits Egypt. She knows she can't do anything about Octavius, and she is terrified of being humiliated and dragged back to Rome. There's a comic line that's kind of interesting. Now keep in mind, when Shakespeare's play was being performed, was being performed in the Globe, and all female roles were played by boys dressed as women, or young men. In this particular case, Shakespeare has a character of Cleopatra bemoan the fact that as she's taken back to Rome, she will one day be the subject of pageants where boys will dress as Cleopatra on stage. A boy dresses Cleopatra bemoans a boy dressing as Cleopatra. <laughs> it's a little tongue-in-cheek joke with Shakespeare, and his audiences would have appreciated more than we do today. So much has been written about Cleopatra, and so much more has been discovered since during Shakespeare's life. He had a few bits of record to go base everything on, but very little. But what a tale he tells. There's even some scholars who have said Shakespeare has seduced us with Cleopatra for hundreds of years. And it's true. He builds a character that today we cannot divorce ourselves from. It is Cleopatra's play. Antony just happens to be sharing some time there. Cleopatra is probably the most dynamic, most complex, and most 
difficult character for any woman in Shakespeare to play, and some of the best women have tried. From Vanessa Redgrave to Tallulah Bankhead, so many people have, have played Cleopatra, and they will continue to want to because it's that powerful of a role. And finally, we have to remember that Shakespeare is aging as a playwright. This is his last big, great play until perhaps The Tempest, which is coming up soon. We're going to go now into a period of Shakespeare's plays where he's writing what are sometimes referred to as the romances because they don't really classify any other way. And he starts writing with his hand-picked successor, John Fletcher, coming up too. Shakespeare is weaning out and fading. But as he disappears into the annals of history, he leaves behind plays filled with complex men and women who are fighting desperately to understand the human condition. Mark Antony in this play looks upon a cloud in the sky and notices how it changes shape with the wind and compares it to his own life, his own way of thinking, that it evolves and changes, and how can man ever know what is true? Then you have Cleopatra, who seems to ebb in and out in her loyalty to Mark Antony and her loyalty to her people. She is at one point fierce and one point dominant, other times submissive, sad, and really empty, vulnerable as a child. This human condition that he writes these characters in is becoming far more prevalent in Shakespeare's writing. He doesn't care about classifications of history, comedy, tragedy anymore. He wants good stories. And he wants stories that relate to us as human beings. He wants stories that transcend time. And what's remarkable to me is as we go into these later plays, such as Pericles, Two Noble Kinsmen, these are plays that we don't know. They don't stand up in the annals of the great Shakespearean plays. And yet in them, he does his most thoughtful thinking, as you, you'll see when we approach The Tempest, where Shakespeare, I think, is at his most sublimely brilliant as a writer who recognizes the human condition. So, if you haven't seen Antony and Cleopatra, please go see Antony and Cleopatra, or read it. It's certainly worth your time, and it certainly depicts a writer who is now matured into his finest sense, and yet his works are now going to start to fall into a category we can't even classify. Thank you for listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. I hope you come back and see me again next week. I'm here on KSEF every Sunday on the 8th. My thanks to KSEF for allowing me to come on. And as always, Carice. We'll see you here next week. But until then, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye.